Victory of Christ over Satan by Adolphe Monod And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. Luke 4, 1-18 My dear Christian friends, the conflict of Jesus has reconciled us to that which we must endure. His victory will be a pledge that we too shall conquer in turn. That which makes us feeble to resist temptation is our uncertainty as to the issue of the strife. Nothing would be impossible to us were we assured of victory. But doubt, bitter doubt, destroys our courage. You are tempted by a spirit of sloth. You wish you could become fervent in spirit and instant in prayer. But you doubt whether you can overcome your spiritual indolence. And, in spite of yourself, you continue to creep slowly along the path in which God invites you to run. You are tempted by a spirit of discontent. Under the weight of a heavy and prolonged affliction, you wish you could abound in thanksgiving. But you doubt whether you will be able to overcome the grief which oppresses you, and your life continues to be spent in fruitless and ungrateful complainings. You are tempted by a spirit of unbelief. You wish you could rely upon God's word with an unshaken confidence. You well know that from this source must come your peace, your strength, your satisfaction. But you doubt whether you will be able to eradicate a sluggishness of faith which has been fostered by temperament, by education, by example, by habit. And you go on wretchedly vacillating between the truth of God and the cavils of a natural heart. You are tempted by a spirit of lust. While abstaining from such excesses as would dishonor your Christian profession, you make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof, and you feel weighed down under a humiliating yoke which is burdensome to bear. But you doubt whether you can address yourself to a life of self-sacrificing devotion, and you go on indulging in a pleasurable and enervating indolence. Oh, you who recognize yourselves in this sad picture, come and learn from the history of my text that you can conquer every temptation. Jesus, like you, has been tempted. And while the first Adam yielded in Eden, the second Adam has gained a universal conquest in the wilderness. His victory is complete. After forty days of unceasing attacks, after a final and desperate assault, the adversary sees himself at last compelled to raise the siege, ashamed and convinced of his weakness, and Jesus has acquired the right to say, The prince of this world has nothing in me. Not one of the fiery darts of the wicked could find an open way to his heart. It is written, He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. No sin before, nor with the temptation, no sin after the temptation, nor proceeding from it. In him we have an high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, well, if Jesus has thus conquered, you too may conquer. Here, as before, we must begin by setting aside the mysterious part of our subject, and the questions more curious than useful to which it has given rise. Between the temptation of Jesus and our temptation the analogy is not complete. For, as children of a corrupt race, we harbor within us lusts which Jesus never knew. Although he took upon himself the infirmities which sin had introduced into our nature, Far be it from us to suppose that he shared in the slightest measure the sinful tendency itself. We may distinguish three kinds of temptations, that of Jesus, that of Adam, and our own. The first was without sin, 
both before and after the trial, the second without sin before the trial, but not after, the third accompanied by sin before as well as after, according to the declaration of St. James in that passage of his epistle, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Hence, upon the moral character of temptation, and the degree of holiness to which we can attain during this life, have arisen those questions which have more than once agitated the Church, but which we think it neither necessary nor possible satisfactorily to solve. However this may be, I here confine myself to the application which concerns us in our actual condition, and I leave the subject on that practical ground chosen by the Apostle James in the words just quoted. Our business is to prevent lust from conceiving and from bringing forth sin. We can always do this. Of all the temptations you encounter on your way, there is not one which you cannot overcome, as Jesus overcame his, and as Adam might have overcome his also. Thus you who are tempted by a spirit of sloth can have life and have it more abundantly. You who are tried by a spirit of discontent can rejoice evermore, and sing aloud with the voice of thanksgiving. You who are tempted by a spirit of unbelief can continue in the faith, established, strengthened, and settled. And you who are tried by a spirit of sensuality can keep under your body, bring it into subjection, and mortify its deeds through the Spirit. You can do it, for what you are called upon to do, Jesus has already done. Perhaps you will answer, Jesus was the Son of God. His victory proves nothing as to us. If such an objection were valid here, it would be equally so elsewhere. Then would it be vain to set forth the pattern of Jesus before men. Then would the Holy Spirit have said in vain, Christ has left us an example that we should follow his steps. But this objection comes from a source which accounts for many other errors, both of doctrine and of practice, which is that we ignore or at all events lose sight of the human nature of our Lord, which it is quite as necessary to be kept in mind as his divinity. Yes, Jesus was the Son of God, but he was also the Son of Man. And as it was in his human nature that he was tempted, in his human nature likewise he overcame temptation. In thus speaking we by no means leave out of sight the divine nature of the Lord in the narrative of the text. We do not forget that Jesus had been immediately before the temptation declared to be the Son of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and thereby strengthened for the conflict which awaited him. I would only have you observe, my dear friends, that during the conflict itself the narrative of the evangelists shows us in Jesus the Son of Man alone, while the Son of God disappears. And yet I mistake. The Son of God does show himself, but only in the words of Satan. The devil reminds Jesus of that title for the purpose of tempting him, now by doubt, then through presumption, and then again through ambition. But Jesus does not make use of it as a means of defense. Had he wished to display his divine power, he might have prayed, as he himself declared in that other struggle which marked the close of his career, to his Father, who would have given him more than twelve legions of angels. What do I say? He needed no angel. One word from his lips, and Satan would have been overthrown like the messengers from the Sanhedrin in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he does nothing of the kind. He confines his energy to man's sphere of action. He wrestles against Satan with man's infirmities and with the means which man has at his disposal. 
He endures hunger and allows himself to be approached, parlayed with, and tempted like a man. Like a man he stands through confidence in God and triumphs by the power of God. In Ephesians 6.10 in the following verses, St. Paul seems to allude to our Lord's conflict. Above all, like a man, he quotes the scriptures which were written by men for men. As we see him on another occasion in his anguish supported by an angel, him whom the angels of God worship, so we here see him resting upon Moses, Lord and Master of Moses, as he is. Wondrous source of astonishment and of admiration. What need had he to turn over, as we do, the books of his servant, in order to find answers to the seductions of the evil one? Might he not have drawn them from his own resources? Is he not the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is in heaven, and who speaketh from heaven? Yes, but it was necessary that here he should speak from earth, to be an example for those who are of the earth. This remark is so true, that not satisfied with appealing only to the Scriptures, he selects from the Scriptures only those passages which apply indiscriminately to all believers. As for the numerous testimonies concerning the Messiah exclusively, and which guarantee to him the victory, he alludes to none of them. So resolved is he to draw merely from the common treasury of the whole church. The more extraordinary this circumstance, the more manifest its intention. Against a temptation common to man, Jesus gains by human resources a human victory to teach human beings that they may overcome even as he overcame. Still farther, not only did Jesus conquer in humanity, but for humanity. Engaged in the contest of the wilderness as the Savior and representative of man. It is in the name and on the behalf of man that he gains a victory, the fruits of which will be gathered by all who believe in his name. Had he not conquered for us, how could his triumph strengthen us against the tribulations of the world? In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He alone could bind the strong man. But the strong man once bound, he does not enter alone the strong man's house and spoil his goods. We also enter after him. Satan is already defeated before he attacks us, and his power is so much the less against us as he finds him present in us by whom he was vanquished in the wilderness. The victory is made so sure unto us in Jesus that the scriptures represent us as having already obtained it. Ye are strong. And the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. In Jesus all is accomplished. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Nothing more is left for us except to join in his triumph, and in order to join in it we have only to believe on his name. Whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. That roaring lion who walketh about seeking whom he may devour is no doubt formidable, but he has vainly tried his strength against the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who hath prevailed, and to whom the spirit of prophecy thus speaketh, From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as a terrible lion, who shall rouse him up? He alone is invincible and it is he who fights for us. For thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, Like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, 
he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for their number. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion, and for the hill thereof. Fear not, greater is he that is in you, than he that is in the world. 1 John 4.4 4. Compare with this passage in Second Kings 6.16 Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And in Second Chronicles 32.7 Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for one more powerful than all that are with him is with us. Let us then rest assured that the victory of Jesus guarantees our own, and that we shall find in him efficient aid, since he himself has met and overcome temptation. Such is the idea of the Holy Spirit in those two passages from the Epistle to the Hebrews which we have already cited. Because he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And again, as he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. I might stop here. This doctrine is sufficiently established, especially as supported by the narrative before us. But the soul that is weary and heavy laden is not so readily assured. It wants new encouragements, which I have no disposition to refuse. In the presence of temptation, it is tormented by two things, its own weakness and the strength of the temptation. If we examine ourselves, we find that we are unable to resist even the most ordinary temptation. And if we consider the temptation, we see that it is strong enough to overwhelm us even when we are strongest. But let us once more draw nigh unto Jesus, tempted in the wilderness. His victory will help to reassure us in both these respects. You are weak, my dear brother, so weak, so languishing, so destitute, so cast down both in body and in mind, that you find yourself unable to overcome the least temptation. Such, indeed, would be the case, if you were left to triumph in your own strength. But do you suppose that it was in his own strength that your Lord triumphed in the desert? You conceive of him, perhaps, as a stranger to all your weakness, calm, unmovable. But this portrait is the work of your imagination, not of the Scriptures. They show the Messiah to us as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They say nothing, it is true, about the state of his mind during the struggle in the desert, and it does not become us to supply what they have left unsaid, nor to state how far his forty days' fast must have exhausted his strength or impaired his courage. But the Scriptures exhibit the Saviour elsewhere under the weight of sufferings which you have never known in Gethsemane. Exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, falling on his face and praying in agony, while his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. They exhibit him on the cross, crying to his God, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where, then, does he find his strength? In God. The aim of the whole temptation is to separate him from God. First, let him provide for his own wants, independently of the providence of God. Then let him receive the ownership of the nations, but not as the gift of God. Finally, let him display his divine glory without the command of God. But solely upon God does Jesus rely. It is not in his own strength that he wrestles and conquers, but in the strength of his Father. Receive instruction then 
my dear friends. If you are less strong than Jesus, your God is not less strong than the God of Jesus. Let this rock be your rock, and his strength shall be your strength. For Jesus, for Adam, for yourselves, the question here is not a question of strength. It is one of faith. As your own strength could not deliver you without faith, so neither can your own weakness injure you with faith. Nay, if advantage be taken of it, this weakness may be of service to you, and the sense of it driving you it may be to seek God's help, you will experience the truth of this word. When I am weak, then am I strong. Strange paradox, sublime truth. Instead of stopping to discuss it, believe it, live upon it. You are, my dear brother, poor and languishing, downcast in body and in mind, incapable of overcoming the least temptation. This is well. You are in the very condition which will enable you to triumph. Now it is that, conscious of all the illusions of pride, and absolutely despairing of yourself, you will seek to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Now it is that you will take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Cling to God, as the branch does the vine. In Him you will find grace to help in time of need. In time of need, note well this expression, it is for the moment of need that his strength is promised you. You would like to enjoy it beforehand, to reassure yourself against the terrors of the future by a complacent consideration of your spiritual supplies. But such are not the Lord's ways. He does not give you today what you require for tomorrow, but he will certainly supply today, for today, and tomorrow for tomorrow. The man whose hand was withered, and to whom Jesus said, Stretch out thine hand, would never have done so if he had waited to receive beforehand the strength requisite for that act. But at the Lord's word he stretches out his hand, and lo, it is healed. Only believe, and thou shalt see the glory of God. The temptation, you say again, is strong, terrible, overwhelming. But was that of Jesus less so? Compare it with that of Adam. The scriptures themselves suggest the parallel, for it is not without design that one of those temptations has been placed at the beginning of the Old Testament, and the other at the opening of the New, opposing here as everywhere the second Adam to the first. Adam is tempted in Eden, Jesus in the wilderness, Adam amidst the abundance of all things, Jesus in want and in hunger, Adam is tempted once and falls, Jesus is tempted three times. We should say, rather, he is tempted for forty days, and he resists. And what a temptation! How subtle, how perfidious, mixing so adroitly truth and falsehood, good and evil, that it seems impossible to separate them. Verily, this is the masterpiece of the spirit of darkness. It is true, as we have already stated, that we cannot exactly balance the Lord's temptation either with Adam's or our own, but we know at least that he had to undergo a conflict by a mystery which we do not attempt to penetrate, a terrible conflict, of which the anguish of Golgotha and Gethsemane can give us some idea. But what signifies the strength of the temptation? It is enough that it was the Holy Ghost who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted there. God who allows the trial is also he who measures it, and he will have taken care, you may be sure, to strengthen his son for the combat according to his need. He will do the same, my dear friends, for you. And this is why no temptation, present or to come, should appear to you irresistible. 
For recollect this, although it is the devil who tempts and not God, it is God who measures the temptation and not the devil, and he measures it either according to the strength which you have or according to that which he has in store for you. This consolatory truth is shown to us in the clearest light by the history of Job. Was Satan ever allowed greater liberty against a poor servant of God? Nevertheless, he still is fastened to his chain, which God lengthens or shortens at his pleasure, but which Satan never can outgo. And the Holy Spirit makes us perceive it on this occasion, that we may know the devil is never without his bonds, although we do not always see them. Satan can undertake nothing against Job without first having obtained God's permission. Put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath. Then, when God grants him the permission, God makes reservations in favor of his servant. First, Job's person is reserved. Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. At a later period, when this first temptation has fortified Job for a harder trial, God, once more entreated by Satan, abandons to him the person of his servant, but on this occasion he reserves his life. Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. Notice the gradation which Satan introduces in the temptations he successively presents to Job. The loss of his fortune, the loss of his family, the loss of his health, and if he had obtained leave, the loss of his life. A certain pride of feeling would perhaps have induced us to reverse this order, but the old serpent knows this matter better than we do, and the dexterity of the course he follows is warranted by God's own authority in this surprising narration. If Job had fallen under the first surprise of this new attack, if he had yielded to despair, he would have justified the enemy's insolent prediction. He will curse thee to thy face. But now he has leisure to recollect himself, to listen to Elihu, to humble himself before God, and notwithstanding a few imprudent words which the excess of his bitterness forces from his lips, he remains firm. He drives back the adversary in confusion, and recovering God's favor in a double measure, he is referred to as a model of patience in the New Testament. James 5.11 We can scarcely refrain from surprise in seeing Job proposed by St. James as a pattern of patience. How are we to reconcile this testimony with those many bitter complaints to which Job gives expression in the third chapter of his history? God is more merciful in his judgments than we are in ours. God measures the patience of his saints not simply by the degree of their submission, but by that degree combined with the extent of their sufferings, just as a man may evince more physical strength while dragging painfully a considerable weight than another man would by carrying easily a light burden. Above all, God looks to the heart, and the heart is revealed but very imperfectly through those external manifestations which alone are perceptible by man. A man who utters bitter complaints may have more inward submission to God's will than another who is better able to moderate the expression of his feelings. This last remark is confirmed by a deep study of Job's complaints. Even in the boldness which characterizes them, and which we cannot entirely justify, we perceive a liberty and familiarity with God which indicates an unshaken confidence in Him, and which honors and pleases Him more than the blameless moderation of many. Job's heart is revealed to us by that of Jeremiah in the following scripture, which will prove offensive perhaps to more than one reader, but which is, I know, infinitely precious as viewed by God. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee, 
or reason the case of thy judgments. Be comforted, then, my dear friends, by the thought that the devil can never tempt you, but by the leave of your heavenly Father, and never beyond the extent which he permits. The same doctrine is found in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. Without this permit, or beyond those limits, he can do nothing against you. Never, then, say that your trials exceed your strength. Such an accusation, apparently aimed at the devil, would be directed against God himself. If the proof which I have just given you from history does not seem sufficient, if you demand a formal declaration from the Lord's own hand, here is one, but after that be satisfied, and doubt no more. It is written, There hath no temptation befallen you, but such as is common to man. So much for the past, now for the future. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. What more do you want? Recall the past. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is as common to man, that is to say, connected with human nature, and consequently surmountable by it. I say by human nature, not such as it was in Jesus, nor even such as it was in Adam, but such as it is in yourself. If Adam before his fall, and Jesus in the wilderness, endured any temptation beyond your strength, it is enough that you have certainly been spared them. Much more, God pledges himself to you for the future, and does so in the name of his own faithfulness. God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. He does not say above what Jesus was able, nor even above what Adam was able. He says above what you are able. But will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye may be able to bear it. After this, my dear brother, if you tell me, Here is a temptation which I cannot overcome. It is stronger than I am. I must choose, you see, between your assertion and God's word. For the first affirms what the second declares to be impossible. No, whatever the appearances may be, as long as God is God and the Bible is his word, we can never have to endure a temptation which it is impossible for us to surmount. The lesson which we have just learned from the victory of Jesus in the wilderness is taught us in many other places of the scriptures, and implied everywhere. We are never compelled to yield to temptation. Having before me a great variety of texts, I quote merely a few, relating or alluding to our subject. Some of the clearest are to be found in that very ninety-first psalm which Satan so imprudently placed in our hands, and which we should not have dreamed of but for the unworthy abuse he makes of it against our master. This psalm is full of promises of victory, but consider especially the words which immediately follow those which Satan calls to his support. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under feet. Why didst thou not finish the quotation, cruel enemy of our souls? Does that verse have nothing to do with thee? The lion and the serpent, those two images, twice associated in so short a passage, may well represent all the enemies we have to encounter, but they refer more particularly to the leader who directs and inspires them, and whom the scripture likewise calls elsewhere, sometimes a lion, sometimes a serpent. That lion we shall tread upon, that serpent we shall trample under foot.
This assurance is still further given us by the words of the Apostle where Satan is distinctly named. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. In this passage Paul alludes to that first prophecy, it, the seed of the woman, shall bruise thy head, and he shows that we learn in like manner from an attentive study of the prophecy itself that the victory is there promised not only to the Messiah, but also to the whole family of believers. The same doctrine may be found in James, who no doubt had in view the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when he wrote, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. But nothing can be compared with the fullness of the promises which the Holy Spirit has given us in John. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. This is not the place to enlarge upon the sense of this difficult passage, but everyone must acknowledge that it at least means that the child of God possesses in himself a secret virtue by which he can subdue the enemy, and that he is never irresistibly constrained to yield to him the victory. The expression, cannot sin, explained by these to commit sin, is employed here to designate not a brother overtaken in a fault, but a heart enslaved to sin. It will not do to urge against me your experience. I know too well that every one of our days is marked by some fall, but for this we only are to blame. It will not do to urge even the experience of the most faithful among the Lord's servants among his saints, his prophets, and his apostles. I do not forget that unblameable as their lives may be when compared with ours, justified as they may be in saying to us, Brethren, be followers together of us, yet they had also cause to say, In many things we offend all. But what then? Is it through a fatal and imperative necessity? Ah, the holier they are, the more will such a thought inspire them with indignation and horror. Go and tell a Noah that he could not have avoided being intoxicated in his tent, a Jacob that he could have obtained the promised blessing only by a lie, a Moses that he could not have glorified God at Meribah, a David that he could not have resisted the charms of Bathsheba, an Elijah that he could not have overcome the discouragement of his soul, a Hezekiah that he could not have subdued a movement of vanity, a Job that he could not have restrained his rash complaints a Zacharias that he could not have believed the words of the angel, a Peter that he could not have confessed his master in the court of the high priest, and you will see them all smite upon their breast and lift up their eyes toward heaven, saying, O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of face. Every time we fall, it is through our own fault. It is because we have not faithfully used the means, always sufficient with which God has furnished us to enable us to stand. Whatever may happen, let God be true, but every man a liar. Let his faithfulness never be suspected. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any man. My brother, my dear brother, lift up the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. Wrestle with courage, with good cheer. You say, oh, if I were sure to overcome. Well, you can always overcome in Jesus. We are not fatalists. We are Christians. Do not make up your mind to any fall. Live not knowingly and willingly on terms with any sin. 
Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Learn, moreover, of Jesus, the conqueror in the wilderness, what may be the results of one single victory. In our Lord's history, the temptation is one of those critical epochs which decide a whole life. Just as a battle, lost or gained, may decide a whole campaign, thus circumstanced, the victory of Jesus not only keeps Satan away for a season, it abates his confidence, and he will return to new conflicts weakened by the presentment of a new defeat. There are also for you such decisive days, nay, perhaps this very day is one of them. Feel its value, its importance. If you fight valiantly, if you obtain a complete victory, you may discourage the enemy forever. If, on the contrary, you give way and leave the issue undecided, you will embolden him and be constantly a prey to his attacks. Only one moment of weakness, think you, one single moment more. But that moment is the one selected by the tempter for a last trial, and in it you are about to ruin his hopes forever, or give them fresh vigor. Courage, then. Stand firm. Give not back a single step. Falter not for a moment. Dispel every illusion of the enemy. Prove to him that with you he loses both his time and his trouble, and by the reception which you give him, compel him to recognize in the disciple the master who overcame him in the wilderness. It costs something, indeed, to conquer. No human undertaking requires so much resolution as the fight of faith, and it is the secret sense of the mighty effort you have to make over yourself which keeps you in a state of indecision. Yes, but think of the joy of triumph. Think of the joy of Job when delivered from trial and sanctified by trial. Think of the joy of the three young men after they came out of the furnace, or of Daniel when he left the lion's den. Think especially of the joy of Jesus returning from victory. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What will not your own joy be when you have overcome that very temptation which has hitherto seemed to you insurmountable, a joy so much the greater, because by your victory you will strengthen your brethren, as Jesus has strengthened you by his victory. Amen. <laughs>